Hey, Remakers, welcome to the podcast. I'm your host, Lily Spencer, and I'm delighted to have you here today. Why do we value nature? Is it because of what it can do for us? Uh, Is it because of the money that we might make from it? Or is it because of the sense of just wholeness and even wonder that we might feel when we experience, connect to, are in nature, or when we know that there are just billions of animals out there in the wild doing their thing. Our next guest is a conservationist, ecologist, systems thinker, and lecturer who is really about connecting the different fields that need to come together for humanity as a species to get better at living on this planet in harmony and in balance with the world around us. His name is Dr. Vishnu Prahalad. He's a senior lecturer in the School of Geography, Planning, and Spatial Sciences at the University of Tasmania, and he is their course coordinator for really the only conservation degree in Tasmania. It's a flagship undergraduate degree called the Bachelor of Natural Environment and Conservation. He was awarded the Tasmanian Tall Poppy Science Award for his research spanning 15 years, um, research and community engagement into wetland conservation. His teaching, research, and outreach he describes as mission-oriented, place-based, and interdisciplinary. Listening to him today is just the most beautiful taste of what it must be like to be one of his students as we talk about really philosophy as much as ecology and conservation. We talk about politics and economics and the worldviews that drive what we do. It's really been one of my most cherished discussions that we've had on the podcast in all of the seasons that we've been going now. I hope that you get as much out of it as I did. Here is Dr. Vishnu Prahalad. Welcome so much to the Roommakers podcast. It is a delight to be looking at you and looking at your beautiful backdrop, which I know our podcast listeners cannot see unless you're watching a clip, but um, you've got this incredible image behind you. Can you describe it for us? Uh, look, uh, wonderful to be here, Lily. Thanks for having me. And the image I have behind me is of one of my favorite natural environments in Tasmania. And it's a wetland in the far northwest of the state. It's quite wild in its character and wonderful uh, biodiversity. So I quite like the place. Yeah. Uh, It's just, I want to blink and kind of be there. Um, Now, you are someone who has been recommended to me through multiple people in circles. You know um, Millie Rooney, my colleague and co-director at Australia Remade. You guys work together at UTAS. But I was also surprised to see you pop up in a sort of lecture that you gave to Modern Money Lab, who we've also had on this season of the show. Uh, and you're, you know, you're talking about ecology and systems change and economics. And um, 
it just seems to me like you're this really wonderful multidisciplinary kind of systems thinker who has obviously a deep grounding in ecology and conservation and um but also can connect the dots in a way that a lot of people don't to things like you know community organizing politics economics so i was wondering if you could just maybe tell us a little bit about just your story i've given people a bit of an introduction to you but like how did you come to be doing this work and connecting all of these threads so well? Well, uh, hello, Millie, if you're listening. Um, and uh, I guess, you know, to answer the question, none of this happened by design, uh, right? I mean, there's a bit of a story in terms of how I got to where I am now. I, I mean, I was, um, you know, I did my undergraduate in engineering and uh, like, you know, many people at that time in India did. That's part of the, you know, generation in India. That's your way to, you know, upward social mobility and so on. And I worked as an engineer for three years, right? And uh, and something inside me told me that that was not my calling. And I didn't know what my calling actually was, but I was not going to find out if I just stuck to my job. So I was lucky enough in that in that in that case to try something different. Just try something different. And and that's when I came to Tasmania and uh, and then you know did my masters. And as I was doing my masters. You know, you know, constantly asking the question, why are things this way and and not another way? And and I was trying to get the answers wherever I could find them. And if I was able to find them in in policy analysis, yeah, I I did some studies on policy policy analysis. Uh, if I could do that through science, and I did science, uh, and that was still not leading me to the answer. And then I sort of you know branched off into economics and philosophy. Uh, and and I'm still in this journey, right? And that that to me is really exciting and exhilarating, and it gives me this energy every morning to go and and keep asking this question: why, and not be limited uh, by a discipline or a domain. Uh, I, it's just the kind of thinking and teaching that we need today, and I'm so jealous, actually, of your <laughs> students. <laughs> I'm so delighted for them that they get, you know, to to kind of sit and and be the recipients and in that dialogue with you. Um, so you're the course coordinator for the kind of flagship undergraduate degree at the University of Tasmania. It's a Bachelor of Natural Environment and Conservation. Um, and really, you say that you're trying to help your students reframe what they are thinking about in conservation from saving a species to changing a system. Can you talk us through just a little bit high level what you mean there or how you try to explain it to an undergraduate who's sitting in front of you going, well, what does that yeah. mean? Yeah, maybe, you know, I should also mention that, uh, I mean, talking about disciplines, the discipline that I'm in and all of our students are studying in is geography. Uh, there are just which seems to be a hotbed for revolution <laughs> by the way we had another person on the podcast who's doing economy economics rather tom walker at think forward but actually he says he learned all of his most useful things in geography well there it is yeah i'm not surprised and, and i guess um what geography allows us to do is to not be committed to a single discipline or an area of study i guess the core of geography that way that i would describe it is that it asks the question, why? And it's not just me, you know, one of the most prominent leading geographers, Professor David Harvey, uh, he, he says the same thing, that the power of geography is that it allows you, it gives you the license as a researcher uh, to keep asking the question, why constantly, and then use whatever tools and methods you can lay your hands on 
to answer the question why and get to another place and then you know go on and on. And I guess that's what we are trying to encourage our students to do within geography, right? We we get wonderful students who are all really committed to you know progressive social change. They want to be part of the change, uh, be it in in terms of sustainability or in terms of saving species and ecosystems and conservation and so on. Uh, so so obviously you know they need to understand the system within which you know social change happens and conservation happens and 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 so on. But if you just teach them the science. Uh, and what that's that's done so far is that if you just focus on the science, yes, obviously, you know, if you just look at the you know our, our lifetimes, so last 30, 40 years, the number of scientific publications has skyrocketed now. You know, there's thousands and thousands of papers published every day. Almost inversely, the number of species ending up on the IUC and the World Conservation Union threatened list is also increasing exponentially. I mean, it is it is a remarkable you know, conundrum, isn't it? Right. So, so if you're just teaching students the science, you're almost setting them to fail. So that, so that, that's, that's just a starting point. Is that obviously we need to understand the science, be absolutely competent in, in the science, be you know conservation science or social science. But what else do we need to do in order to actually achieve those outcomes and and stem that loss of species that we're seeing across the world? Uh, would that be politics? Would that be economics? Would that be philosophy? And, uh, and I guess, you know, would that be indigenous studies, which is, you know, increasingly becoming, uh, picked up for good reasons? Uh, would that be foreign language studies, you know, understanding different cultures from around the world? And that's all important for us to really get a sense of how we're going to actually make a difference in terms of social change or, or conservation. Yeah, it reminds me of that now kind of famous quote from a climate scientist going back a decade or more at least saying, you know, I thought that the world's problem was a lack of information or the burning of fossil fuels. And then I realized it was greed or it was the economic system that we're in. And it feels like the message that you're telling us now is one that we would want to just take back into the past, you know, 30, 40 years and go, guys, (laughs) like the science is not enough. Like we need you to be masters of it yes we need you to be you know students and and diligent with it but it's not going to save us by ourselves if we can't take on these other or understand and engage with these other forces um yeah absolutely yeah wow uh so i was wondering if you could indulge us then on a bit of a thought experiment and Really, um, this is something that I think is so helpful for us sometimes to kind of step out of the mire of what we are in right now, which can feel so intractable. So we're going to imagine that you've discovered a time machine or a portal into the future, and you travel 30 years into the future, so 2053. And in that time, humanity has faced all of these challenges. You know, we often are talking about 2050 as the time frame for net zero and then that's not good enough but let's say that in that time we've gone beyond just kind of offsetting carbon emissions and getting to net zero and we've actually changed our paradigm and we are now living much more in harmony with nature much more of an ecological rather than an industrial sort of civilization and our values our structures you don't have to swim against the sea you don't have to go against the grain you don't have to work so darn hard to be sustainable or to make good choices because the system is actually set up to support that so you get out of your portal your time machine your wormhole whatever it is that you've gotten in 
and you walk around, what do you notice? How are things different? What are the politics of the day that people are talking about? Or how are businesses, like what are people doing? What's the, what are you noticing about this kind of semi-near future of ours where we've actually kind of made this shift? How, how is it different to the world we're in right now? Thanks, Lily. That's a wonderful question. Uh, although, can I say that this shouldn't be an indulgence. This should be a necessity. And, and I'm, not, I'm not alone in saying this, right? So Rob Hopkins, the founder of the Transition Network. Him, yeah. Right. I mean, this his recent book, which has been popular for good reason. I read it. It's wonderful. And, and the focus of the book is about uh, in, in imagination. And the title of the book is From Waters to What If and, and the Power of Imagination. And what he's arguing, and a number of other people arguing, like Seth McHilton from the US and, and, a, and a lot of other people, is that we have an imagination deficit. And, and this also ties in with what we were talking about earlier, is that you know there's no real science deficit or an information deficit now. So what, what else is lacking? And I guess you can say, well, we need to understand economics and politics and culture and so on. But also, we need to give ourselves this this license and not think of it as an indulgence, as a necessity to imagine alternative futures and different futures, right? So with that preface, you know, what I would like to see, and, you know, thankfully, this is in my lifetime, hopefully I'll be able to live long enough to see this and experience this for real, is I get up in the morning and do my usual things and uh, go out and, uh, you know, smell the roses, literally <laughs> and metaphorically. <laughs> And, and head to the city hall or, or a conference center, right? And I am one of a few hundred people randomly selected to be involved in this deliberative public discussion. And it's it's running for a few weeks and obviously we're not trivializing it, but just having it for one or two days. And there are other members of the community, right? Representing the cross-section farmers and you know trades and so on. And we are in this space, it's quite comfortable. Uh, we're getting all this information from experts who are being funded well uh, publicly to research various domains of society, you know, all the way from demographics to conservation and public policy. They're giving us all the information that they've put together wonderfully, right? And then out of all that information, we then have questions to deliberate to imagine the future in 2019. Okay. So here we are imagining the future in 2050, almost in a bubble, um, being indulgent to imagining where, what society would be if we did this as part of normal business as usual. That is the government's, you know, funding this, the premier's there. If you like, the prime minister's there, all the ministers are there. They're saying, well, you are the people. This, these decisions are going to affect you. Here are the experts. Here's the best available information we have. Let us decide on this democratically, right? And, and there are various forms of this. And juries are examples of it. Um, People's Forum is another example, which we've just published on recently, where we give this opportunity for us to imagine a future. And because it's done democratically and there's a lot of media around it, uh, and we get those decisions out, and those decisions become objectives for us, visions for our future that are laid down concrete that we can all put our hearts and hands towards uh, creating this future. I love that so much. 
Now, now I want to be in there with you in your wormhole with you. Yeah, look, yeah, I would love to have this conversation with you uh, across the table and imagine, uh, you know, different futures. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I know that um, in my kind of research, Wales has really shown as an example of a country that had these conversations of like, what do we really value and did the deliberative democracy thing really well and then enshrined it into you know, goals that now all of society work toward with a future, you know, generations commissioner thinking ahead and encouraging, cajoling people to kind of get them out of the short termism and into that sense of what do we want? But I'm also so struck by your answer. Like they're not sitting on their laurels, like, you know, frolicking around in the streets going, yay, we've got universal basic income or whatever it is. You know, they're actually sitting there still, still dreaming, still imagining, still co-creating together in a more deliberative, democratically, you know, informed way. Yeah, and, and that's adaptive management, right? And, and we teach this to students and it's meant to be part of, you know, any form of management is that things are changing all the time. I mean, this is the indeterministic nature of reality. Our grasp of reality is only limited in terms of our own knowledge and the tools we have and the current conditions that we have access to. And that's always going to be shifting. So as that reality is shifting, we've got to keep up with it as best as we can. And that can only be achieved through a continuous process that is structured and that has legitimacy and has visibility uh, as in the example that I described. And there are other, other wonderful uh, thought experiments and examples from scholars around the world, um, which we could very much employ. And there's no reason why we shouldn't. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Can you think of an example in the real world of this kind of deliberative process that has stood out and, and led to a different kind of outcome than maybe we would have expected? There are examples of citizens' juries, and uh, and I know some councils, even in Australia, have uh, tried citizens' juries, and this is for complex planning decisions. Uh, you know, you have a, a public space, are we going to put in a car park or are we going to put in some form of sustainable transport? It's very politically contentious. So how do you, how do you get across that? And, you know, we've tried citizens juries to get across that. And I know Melbourne um, is also experimenting with citizens juries. Um, in Tasmania also, we've tried uh, a process called Tasmania together, you know, a few years ago, and it just didn't have the political momentum or the investment uh, to get where it could have gotten to. And right now, people are experimenting with it, right? So, you know, but the, the focus, the political, you know, energy towards is, is very limited. It's almost like a, an academic exercise uh, on the side, um, which is, which is interesting and, if you like, indulgent. Uh, while it should be, you know, the, the, the core of what democracy is about, right? And, and, you know, rather than spending millions and millions in terms of, you know, the political process and elections and, and, and all of that. Uh, we could invest more in this space so that we get these decisions that are democratically made by the people themselves. And the role of politicians would then be, um, how do we then take those decisions and then, uh, if you like, communicate that to the public at large and administer those actions following those decisions and so on. Mm. I can't help but think of the voice referendum because at the time of this recording, by the time people listen to it, we'll know the result. But at the time we're recording it right before the Saturday when people go and vote. And I think it's going to be really interesting to see the kind of fight for the control of the narrative after that happens. And I think one of the narratives that I'm worried about is 
democracy's stuffed. <laughs> you know, we can't, people are, you know, that if it doesn't get out, that people will say, see, this is proof um, that there is this chasm between regular people and elites, and we can't trust the masses to make good decisions because secretly they're all racist or they're all this or they're all that. And I just think that would be really heartbreaking when actually, it, you know, the questions of, well, how do we do it well? And I think, as you say, we don't invest well at a, on a rate, like we don't, we're not practiced at this way of decision-making. It's not, it's not really taught at school. Like, you know, people are always lamenting the lack of even basic civics education in schools. You know, we don't have a real grasp of, of how to do this well. We haven't tried and failed and refined and gotten better at it. So we do these like either big splashy kind of one-off events with politicians or these kind of interesting thought bubble side projects with academics. But we need to really actually build this into the center of our democratic infrastructure. And that will happen over time with, I think, you know, people realizing that this is just a better way to do things yeah and and there are good and bad ways to do this right and uh, and if you like uh, what we do with uh voting every three or four years and things like the referendum uh is often you know showcased as forms of democracy that everyone has a say in it but is it really uh i guess you know if if you if you had to give people a questionnaire as a basis of entry into the polling booth and the questionnaire asks really basic questions about, you know, what's the policy of the of the person who you're going to be voting for? What do they stand for? Uh, and then if they get it wrong, they won't be able to go in and actually cast the vote, right? If, if you did like that, such a professor. Here's the quiz. <laughs> you actually know what you're voting for. If uh, not, sorry, go back and do some more homework. Yeah, look, I mean, you know, we we do this with uh, teaching. You know, students uh, won't be able to get past first base if they if they don't get have their facts right. Yeah, well. uh, but we, we do this in elections and call this, you know, the the voice of the people and 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 so on. And, you know, like this has been criticized by many people across many many decades and even centuries. So, but I mean, but we just forget it, right? That we 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 just you know don't recognize the limitations of those forms of so-called democracy and and precisely what I'm sort of envisioning for the future, which should probably be happening now, is more involved forms of democracy. And I liked how in your you know process that you're talking about, citizens are coming together, but they're also hearing from, you know, unbiased experts, hopefully people who haven't just been sponsored by a corporation or something, but people who have done their work and can come and present the facts. And I know you know, there have been some powerful examples of that overseas um, in Ireland, I believe, with the abortion um, debate and overturning that ban and, you know, interesting things like that. Um, so we've been talking a bit about the future. You also have, through your um, expertise, you know, you teach about different worldviews and that draws, of course, on the past. And so I was watching this lecture that you gave with Modern Money Lab and you were talking about how, you know, in this sort of vision of the world or or worldview philosophy emerged in the 16th and 17th centuries in Europe of kind of nature as a mindless machine. And so God was the watchmaker, God made the world, and then God retired and went, okay, humans, over to you. <laughs> it's now your job to kind of manage this thing. Do you think that is still a fair description of where we are at in Western culture as a mindset? Are we still living with the inheritance of that worldview? Yeah, quite so. And and I guess thinking about worldviews is um, fascinating 
uh, but also perhaps disturbing if you if you do get get to the bottom of it, right? So you can you can think of uh, this in the context of an iceberg or or a or a pyramid where. Um, you know, at the top of the water in the iceberg, we see, you know, everyday events and, and, you know, often that's what you get news reports on on a daily basis. But then just below the surface of the water, uh, you can link these events in a sequence over time and observe patterns and say, well, there's a, you know, increasing trend in, in violence or, and, and so on. Uh, and, and below those patterns, and you, you start questioning, you know, why are these patterns apparent? Uh, and 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 why are other patterns not apparent, like more towards sustainability and conservation? And then you get to some system structures in terms of taxation arrangements and how banks operate, um, how politics is captured by private vested interests, and, and so on. Do you see those structures? And then you say, well, could we take this even deeper? And if you go deeper to the the next level, rock bottom, uh, you get the worldviews, and and the worldviews are like you say. Uh, is that nature is a vast, mindless machine. So, you know, nature has no agency, no purpose. Uh, who has agency and purpose as humans, and specifically some some humans over others. And, uh, and you can, you know, look at uh, developed countries and some section of the population, and there's gender and, and race and all sorts of things tied into it. So they have authority. They get to determine, they call the shots. Uh, and, uh, and, and determine what happens to nature and create those structures, rules and regulations and monetary processes that, you know, then create those patterns and events at the end of the day. Well, I didn't have a sense of this, right? So, you know, early part of my life was in India and I had a access to a worldview, like, you know, you're a fish in here and water and, and the water is just water, right? And uh, and then obviously having moved to Australia all those years ago, and and you see the daily life operating completely differently, uh, different values driving decisions and judgments, and you go, I mean, this is the same world that we live in, and it's almost like you know going back to your idea of a time machine, it's, it's almost like you've taken a time machine from one. Uh, worldview in one part of the world and come to another worldview in another part of the world. I still feel this every time I go to India. And I guess I feel this strongly because I know the Indian culture intimately, having grown up there. And, and sometimes people might have a, an insight into this or a sense of this when you go traveling to, you know, radically different cultures. You go to Japan and you're like, wow, you know, t- things are different, especially you go out of, out of, you know, Tokyo and the big cities and you're like, this is, this is, and that's, that's what excites us about travel too, is we get, you know, it's like a, taking a time machine to go and observe a different worldview and see how those worldviews create those structures they have, uh, and how those structures, you know, you know, create those patterns of everyday life. And, and then the events that people do, you know, what do they get, get up to in the morning? And then how do they work and how do they eat and, and go to bed and, and so on. So what was the worldview that you were immersed in growing up and how is that different to what you feel here? <laughs> um, right. So now, because, um, you know, I'm a geographer, I'm, I'm able to sort of look at this in a bit more uh, in an academic way, if you like. Uh, but I guess I'll, I'll explain my uh, thinking in terms of examples. Growing up, I, I remember my grandmother uh, telling me not to hurt the ants. I'm like, you know, why? They just, they just ants. And, and she told me ants have a right to life. 
Okay. I was like, oh, that, that's interesting. All right. And uh, 10 years ago, I traveled back to India uh, to this conservation forum, and they, they had this presentation on uh, why it's important to conserve vultures. Okay. And, uh, and you know, I was listening to the presentation that was all about, you know, do this to vultures, do that to vultures. There was one fundamental piece of that presentation that was missing for me. Uh, which I would have seen in Australia. And that, that's what I do all the time, right? When I talk about why it's important to conserve wetlands, I start my presentation, and indeed most of us do, uh, with the argument in terms of why wetlands are useful for us. See what I mean? That That is the worldview here, is that we protect something because it is useful to us. And the more useful it is to us, and, and the more useful it is to us in economic terms, the argument for the protection is greater. But going back to this vulture conversation in India, there was no effort to main, <laughs> made to argue for the use of vultures. It was just assumed that vultures had a right to, to life. And, and this is actually crystallized. I was, I was surprised to learn this in the Indian constitution. If, if you read the Indian constitution, uh, what it says is that it is the duty of the citizens of India, uh, sort of something along these lines, uh, to look after the natural environment and have compassion for living creatures. So my grandmother was indeed practicing the Indian constitution and, and the speaker who was talking about vultures was, I guess, embodying it uh, in a way. And that's all part of the worldview. No one talks about it. It's it's just the way it's life assumed. is. It's just part of the air you breathe. Yeah, it's just the, it's, it's just what it is, right? How do people reconcile that with eating meat if they're not vegetarian, or is vegetarianism just the norm, and you don't you don't have to tell people you're vegetarian? It's assumed you are. I, I mean, this is where you have subcultures, and they're all got yeah. different. I know, and that's a big general <laughs> question. Like billions <laughs> of people, tell me what it's like. Yeah. And what, one interesting aspect of that, maybe you know, worth sharing here is um, in in some you know subcultures in India, uh, uh, they eat fish, and they make an exception to eat fish; otherwise, they're vegetarian. And they call fish jalapushpam, which is uh, the flowers or the vegetables of the water. Mm -hmm. <laughs> mm -hmm. So in a way, you, you sort of, you know, uh, considering fish as a vegetable or, or a flower. <laughs> I mean, I've heard, I think it's Annabelle Crabb in Australia talks about she doesn't eat things with legs. <laughs> you know, like yeah, okay. yeah. there, there are different uh, categories and, and kind of ways of looking at that. But I love that idea of something just has that the ant has a right to exist, the vulture has a right to exist. And look, you've just recently published a paper where you talk about market-driven environmentalism and how ecologists and conservationists haven't kind of questioned the fundamentals. And so in a sense, are kind of almost not perpetuating, but unintentionally, not necessarily challenging this idea that we have to put a monetary value on nature and therefore, if we lose this bit of nature, you know, maybe there's a section of high value land, wetlands, biodiversity. If we lose that or damage that, we've got to offset it over here somewhere else. And that these is basically like neoliberal thinking, kind of colonizing or shaping how we think about conservation and ecology. Is there starting to be a pushback from that? Are we starting to transform how what we 
what we challenge or what we argue for? Are there ecologists saying, no, this wetland has a right to exist? And it's not about, you know, the value of it that it brings and in, in the work that it does for our air and water and whatever. Yeah, look, um, I guess that that is a good illustration of um, how um, we ourselves in our in our daily work as experts often don't have the time or the capacity or the energy uh, to go down and delve into the role that worldviews play or, or or be political and say, you know, let's change those structures, right? I mean, why should we monetize something in order to protect it? Um, and, and if, you know, if it's a legislation or a policy, can we question that and change those structures and then question those worldviews and so on? So we, we don't do that because our remit is just to do the science and, uh, and trying to sort of protect a few ecosystems or species here and there. So for me, I haven't seen hope in my own field uh, in terms of the transition or the questioning. But where I've seen hope is in my field is our recognition of the importance of indigenous worldviews, indigenous knowledge, and collaboration with First Nations people. Because for them, this is their worldview. Again, talking about worldviews and, and so on, is, is country, you know, country and people are not separate. You know, sea country, land country are not separate, although, you know, for conversation, you might want to sort of call them different. And that's that's their worldview. And if, if we are to you know, have this reconciliation with the indigenous community here and indeed in other parts of the world, uh, we need to be able to speak the same language and have similar understandings and, and, and challenge our worldviews in trying to relate to other worldviews. And that's where I, I see the hope in terms of trying to protect habitats and ecosystems because they're country and, and that's part of who we are and what we are and not because uh, the Grand Barrier Reef is worth X billion dollars or something like that. I mean, just think about it, right? So if you say the Grand Barrier Reef is X billion dollars and hence we need to protect it, and, and, and this is supposed to sort of have uh, some resonance with the public, how many members of the public have seen X billion dollars or, you know, <laughs> even X million dollars? I mean, it's just something that no one has any access to or can relate with. Still, we using it as a blunt instrument, dollar figures as a blunt instrument to to argue one way or the other, uh, and that's driven by the worldviews and and structures, neoliberal structures that we have. Yeah, I've also heard um, the Tas. Uh, well, he's not Tasmania based, but he's um, in Canberra. The economist Richard Dennis, who we've had on the podcast, to talk about don't say that we should protect Tasmania's old growth forests because of all of the tourism values they bring of, you know, the, the dollar, because if, because that's not actually the reason, like it's intellectually dishonest. And if one day logging is worth more than tourism or toilet paper rolls or, or whatever it is, like we, we wouldn't actually turn around and be like, oh, okay, well it's now worth more. So, you know, I guess logic demands that we go in and cut that down. It's like, we we make our arguments in these economic terms trying to appeal to decision makers and, and decision makers make them in economic terms thinking that that's how they're going to appeal to the public and we're all caught up in this thing that you know it's like <laughs> i was on the beach the other day um we're just doing a nippers thing with my my youngest who's six and there's this other mom on the beach and we're just having a chat about how great it is to be outside and she says to me you know 
I just feel like, you know, the main problem in the world today, it's just capitalism's ruining everything and nothing is sacred. And she totally took me by surprise. Like, I just couldn't <laughs> believe that I was having that conversation with a fellow mom on a Sunday morning who I'd never met before, you know? And it's like, I think we don't give people enough credit for the fact that we see the, the issue here, that we see that there's something hollow and it's hurting us. Yeah, yeah. And there's a lot of research um, on uh, things like, uh, what do people value when it yeah. comes right down to it? Uh, do people value uh, money or uh, do people value uh, nature or, or or even at a, at a more fundamental level, do people value a sense of wonder and Ooh, excitement I love that. Uh, in encountering nature and, and wild things in their place, doing their wild thing? Yeah. And the answer is overwhelmingly yes. Yeah. And this is the argument for framing. And if you if you follow the argument for framing for nature, yeah. we frame conservation in terms of uh, how it brings us a sense of, you know, being complete, whole, because we share this wonderful planet with these wild animals who, you know, live and do their thing on a daily basis. Yeah, that's beautiful. Uh, so... I love this idea of, you know, this, the, the the iceberg and the thing at the deepest level. And that is actually the most powerful thing, you know, that we can shift. We sit, shift that, we shift kind of the goals of the systems and the laws and the rules and the structures and everything else can kind of follow. I'm curious in your, from your perspective, are there things that we could learn from nature? right, about how to live better in harmony with nature, about how to be better citizens of the planet or part of the web of life, but not the thing with agency that's just coming in and manipulating everything else to suit the ends of the powerful few among us. What can nature teach us about how to be better humans, how to be alive better, better animals? Yeah, look, um, I guess this is, in an interesting space where oh, we are reimagining the future and inventing, reinventing worldviews and relearning some of the things that we used to know. We used to know when we had this daily intimate access to nature. We observed nature and we saw all the wonderful things that nature did and we applied that in our own systems. And, and if, if you're a gardener, you know, we do mulching and because mulching, you know, like in forest systems, uh, the, the thick little layer of the bottom of the forest is wonderful for a range of things. And we've learned from that to mulch in our gardens. And, uh, we, you know, have plants that attract pollinators in our gardens. So then, you know, we get the benefits in terms of pollinating our tomatoes and fruits and, and so on again, learning from nature. Uh, well, I guess we're starting to integrate this and, and more and more you get terms like nature-based solutions or working with nature and, and so on. Uh, so the argument here for, for me and, and many researchers is that we need to upscale that. And and there's two ways of doing this. One is a bottom-up approach, which is all the examples that I mentioned. But what we haven't done enough is the top-down approach is how can we envision whole cities, uh, whole regions that would work like nature? Uh, that would work like a large forest ecosystems that 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 have managed to sustain themselves at the face of adversity over millennia. 
they've, they've managed to do that. So that's what we want to do in the context of sustainability, uh, live forever and, and sustain ourselves forever. So what can we learn from those systems that have done that so that we can do it ourselves? And, uh, and that would involve thinking uh, around the context of, you know, bioregionalism and local living economies and so on. Because if you, if you think about nature, a lot of the processes in nature happen locally. Of course, there are global transfers in terms of the carbon cycle, the hydrogen cycle, uh, and so on. Uh, but most of the energy and matter is transferred locally. Right. And that's managed to sustain life on the planet for, for a very, very long time. Our economic systems, you know, how can we create our social economic systems that would function in a similar way? So a lot of our energy and matter is transferred locally through local economic exchanges and, and the concept of bioregions and so on. While we still have that international transfer in terms of learning about cultures and learning about technology and science advances in other parts of the world. And, and tr indeed, traveling to other parts of the world and experiencing these uh, firsthand. So having the best, best of both. I find this utterly fascinating. And I just, I, where can people who want to dive more into this? Because I, I, I don't hear about this and I'm, I'm trying to learn about this. So, you know, like where can we start to, who's doing this? Who, who should we be looking up, reading, following, finding? Because it feels so hopeful to think that we could actually... <laughs> <laughs> apply this and learn learn how to live a lot uh, a lot better life um here on earth through these you know lessons from nature there's a there's a lot of work being done around bioregional economies mm -hmm. and uh, there's even a book called bioregional economy written by a green politician in the uk okay we can find that link to it yeah and, and she's a professor in economics and uh yeah and uh I think it's called Bioregional Economy. Yes, Molly Carter is her name. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. And there are other scholars. Patrick Sale is one who's been writing about this for, for many, many years. And there's uh, there's also a group called uh, Economics of Happiness. Mm -hmm. And their whole you know, objective is to you know, create these local living economies and they have conferences around the world every year. And they've, again, got a number of scholars who are uh, looking at how we can create these structures, you know, going back to the importance of structures to mm -hmm. then have the patterns that we want and the events that we want. Uh, so how do we create these economic structures, production structures that can operate locally and, and you know, improve our self-sufficiency and sustainability at a local level? Okay, so localism is obviously a big theme or a big yeah. guiding principle of what we can learn from nature, right? And this is also very much part of the degrowth platform. Yeah. And so I guess my response to your question there is that there's there's a lot of different people and, and movements sort of exploring the space in terms of how we can create thriving local economies and, and cultures. But I guess to the extent that they've related this to natural systems is not as much as I would like to see. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it seems like it's a real potential for, you know, kind of burgeoning exploration and scholarship and hopefully talking outside of our bubbles to, you know, to the wider world. Um, and, uh, you know, it just strikes me, too, that like most of what I think the average person has heard about over the last decade has been climate change. 
And so we're talking about the environment on this very global scale, you know, tons of emissions. And yes, we talk about individual country targets, or we might talk about if you live in a, in a particular region that is coal or fossil fuel dependent. But in general, part of what's been so disempowering is, you know, someone just says, well, it doesn't matter. Australia could stop emitting tomorrow. And, you know, we'd be overtaken by these other, it's like, there's this sense that, um, we're doomed because we can't get everybody to change. It's just too big a scale and going local might make us feel nice, but it won't actually change anything. So I'm quite intrigued to hear you say that there's a real sort of scientific basis for this idea of, of a localism that is healthy and integrated and natural in the world. And we don't just have to think on this global scale in terms of trying to solve our relationship to nature, for example, or to transform our relationship to the rest of the natural world. Yeah. And and this goes, this is not necessarily a novel idea, right? I mean, it's not at all novel if you, you know, include, you know, indigenous thought and cultures around the world. I mean, look at the, at the map of uh, indigenous nations of Australia. And, and there's a strong correlation with the bioregions of Australia, as opposed to the random boundaries we've drawn around states and territories, <laughs> right? Uh, so they've always understood this, uh, and 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 the efficiency, if you like, of organizing um, communities and, and nations around those nature's boundaries and nature's limits. Okay, and uh, other people, you know, prominently Gandhi, that was his vision for India, that India would be a country of a million villages or something like that. And and in his mind, when he said villages, he probably wasn't thinking of primitive people who, who were sort of, you know, <laughs> not technologically advanced and, and so on. In his mind, he was thinking of uh, possibly, you know, people who are self-sufficient and have the freedom and respect and autonomy that they deserve, as we all do as, as humans, are able to look after themselves locally and still have these, you know, cross-regional exchanges. Another prominent person who has written about this recently is Nicholas Tulloch, uh, his book, especially Anti-Fragile. Uh, he talks about the importance of local and, and, and the like. And another uh, scholar is Nicole Foss, assistant singer from Canada. Um, she's written stuff around this as well. But this is this has also, also been part of the political thought and, and scientific thought going back in time. Thomas Jefferson, I and mean, his, his vision for America, is one of the founding fathers of the U.S., the president, and, and so on, was that it would be an agrarian society, in an, an agrarian democracy, right? And um, um, Alexander von Humboldt, again, you know, he, uh, you know, one of the most leading scientists of that generation, and uh, again, his view was that, uh, you know, we would have an agrarian society that would allow people the freedom of uh, movement and political thought and so on, and and make themselves sufficient in terms of all of their needs and and enjoy life. Yeah, yeah. Um. So, all right, stepping up a level of the iceberg into systems and structures, what are some of the systemic changes or structural changes to policy or to law that you think we could start to enact today that would help get us on that track? Uh, toward our, you know, desired 2053 or whatever time frame we're looking at, you know, that would help help us to kind of reorganize. And I know it's connected to the paradigm, but like shift in the direction of what you're talking about, because also unusually for someone in conservation and ecology, I know that you have opinions about things like, you know, the policy and the politics of, of where we're at. 
Yeah, definitely. And, and this is a, a tricky question to answer, but a very important question to talk about. And by that, I mean that uh, when we are thinking about solutions, we have a sense of what solutions are useful given our limited understanding of the system that we're working in and so on. So in systems thinking, we, we think of solutions across the whole iceberg. So you have solutions that try to sort of change everyday behavior at the level of events, and you have solutions that really challenge worldviews and get people to think about, you know, how to shift values and worldviews and so on. And you have solutions aimed at structures, you know, changing legislation, for example, uh, or bringing in new policy for renewables and, and climate mitigation and so on, an example of changes in structures. The argument is that we need solutions across the board. But, but the problem is that most of our solutions right now are focused on events. And this is a, this is an argument made by Janela Meadows, who's one of the prominent thinkers in the field. Uh, in her book, Thinking Resistance, she argues that almost more than 90% of our solutions are focused on events, uh, with very little, uh, attention given to changing patterns, let alone changing structures or worldviews. So I guess in my own work and in, in the way we teach students, we get them to think about solutions across the board. That, that solutions have to be proportional to where we are in that, in that iceberg level, uh, and be synergistic. So we might end up, you know, choosing vegetarian meals, if you like, going back to that example. And, uh, and yes, that's important because it's sending market signals to, you know, restaurants and, and supermarkets. The more people who do that, uh, then it'll make, make it easier for us to, you know, order vegetarian food and more options. And again, with restaurants, there, are, you know, supermarkets, there are more options for us. So that's important, right? But that in itself is not important if you're not then changing the system structures and looking at, you know, how are these foods produced? Uh, are they still produced through a system of agriculture that is heavily reliant on mechanization uh, and uh, high inputs of energy, specifically through fossil fuels and global, you know, forms of exchange and treaties and agreements and so on? Well, that's that's not a solution for anything, right? Uh, so, so I guess you know, yes, you can change those events and and try to push for more a plant-based diet or a locally sourced diet. But then if you're not then coming down to the structures, the global structures in terms of our food production systems globally, then I guess we'd be missing the point. And, and, and as we're doing that also, why not have a conversation about food and culture, which is about worldviews, right? And uh, I mean, you know, it's very powerful to think about how little we think about food and culture, right? I mean, when we, when we ask people to name you know, five vegetables, you know, we, we generally, you know, damn the five vegetables that are always available in the supermarket, no matter the season, you know, your carrots and your brassicas and, and so on. But then if you look at our closest relatives like orangutans and, and look at their diet, and it, it is staggering. They, they can recognize and, and they feed on over 200 or so vegetables on a regular basis or, or, you know, foods on a regular basis. Uh, and there's no reason we can't do that. It's just that our worldviews have been so constricted to the extent that we, when we think of food, we think of it in a certain way, 
right? And that then creates those structures that, you know, tie us to, you know, just, you know, focus on those three or four vegetables. And this is also, you know, filtered through to rice production, for instance, in India, where, you know, there are over, you know, I don't know how many rice varieties there are, you know, and, and all of the diversity is now being lost because we can only recognize two or three different rice varieties, long grain, short grain, maybe basmati, right? But there's more to it. And, and, uh, so I guess there's an illustration of how it's really important for us to think about solutions across all of these different levels and, and especially make sure that they're synergistic. And so what do you say to the student that says to you, that's great, Professor, but God, that's hard, you know, because I feel like, I mean, I was expecting you in that last question, for example, to say like, well, you know, I think we could have a four day work week so that people could have more time to engage as citizens in their communities. Or I think we could have, you know, a jobs guarantee so that people could be employed by the federal government to do useful things or have a, you know, expanded public sector. And, and I love that you didn't go there and that you went to, into like food and recognizing the variety of, uh, you know, the fact that we're eating a limited range of things based on the five things that we see all the time in the supermarkets and in the shops. I think one of the things that I encounter and I think a lot of people feel is this sense of if we have to change everything, we're like, oh, you know, <laughs> someone say to that 19 year old. Who, who goes, but my goodness, like it's hard enough to get the little thing at the top of the iceberg changed. You know? <laughs> There's a whole discipline of people doing behavioral economics, trying to nudge people in the right direction to make better choices. And now you're telling me that if we don't operate on all levels and make sure they're synergistic, that we're missing the point and we're doomed. Like, what do you do? Maybe I should ask as like when you're feeling overwhelmed by the, by the sheer scope and the sheer challenge of that, what gives you a sense of hope or action or direction? Um, I get asked this by students as well, um, in, in, in terms of, you know, where, where I see everything going. And, and to this, I turn to, um, you know, one of the things I learned as a child, uh, but I never understood the importance until, until obviously in my more recent life as a, as a geographer and a lecturer. Uh, it is karma yoga or insistence terms. It is the focus on the process and the acceptance of the outcome, because we only have access to the process and not the outcome. The outcome is, is what it is, right? It's based on all of the other feedbacks that are happening in the system, just the indeterministic nature of reality, uh, is that it's always surprising. Sometimes it's good. You know, we, we you know, some of the paper, it gets accepted, it gets published. Yay. But, you know. <laughs> Uh, sometimes, you know, the outcomes are not predictable and you get different, you know, responses and, and so on. So I guess the, 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 the focus there is to focus on the processes and, and enjoy the processes and, uh, and then not, not to, to be too caught up with the outcomes. So obviously, we, have, we need to have a sense of where we want to go. Uh, but if we focus on the process, I think that's, that's better. I feel like that is just the perfect segue to to, <laughs> to my last question for you, for you before we start to kind of land the plane and wrap it up a little bit, which is you were named for Vishnu, Hindu god of really sustainability, of balance, of um, and so as I understand it, um, the maintainer who keeps the universe in balance in this divine trinity, along with Brahma, the creator, and Shiva, the destroyer. Now, as a mother of young children. Can I just say that I love that there is a God 
that maintains because I feel like this is what I do with 90% of my life. My waking hours are just spent doing work that that it's it's not ta-da, you didn't create, you know, we celebrate creation. We celebrate the person who creates a book or a thing or and that and as we rightly should. And and the destroying, well, at least that's cathartic. You know, that can be really satisfying to go in and just out with the old. But the God of balance, of maintenance, like recognizing that that is real work and a real third force that must be kind of honored in the universe. It's, it's like you were born to be a conservationist. I guess I got, I got to thank my parents for that. And uh, <laughs> um, yes, it is, it is a um, really wonderful way to think about the, the balance in nature. And that I guess the importance to recognize maintenance or, or indeed the processes that we were talking about as being, you know, very much part of our life. And again, if we look at indigenous cultures, you know, other cultures like Tibetan cultures and, and Buddhist cultures around the world, a lot of daily life is dedicated to maintenance, right? I mean, you know, you can see it uh, unlike you know, I know exactly what you mean. I've got a little one at home too, and 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 I've got a garden, and uh, and there's a lot of administrative work in that spark maintenance, and there's good and bad things about it. Uh, but it is very much an important part of what we do. In fact, a, a lot of what we do between creation and destruction, and and creation is you know the tower of creation and destruction. You can't have creation without destruction. Uh, and different people have theorized it differently. And Schumpeter, for instance, called the process of creative destruction. Economic process of creative destruction. Uh, so I guess that that's very much there. But but what what often tends to get missed is this importance of maintenance, and 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 we don't value it, right? So and in, in, in economic, you can you can prove it, right? In economic terms, uh, we don't value looking at us looking after ourselves. It's sort of meant to be done in the mornings and evenings and. And you, you don't get paid to do it, and washing your clothes, and so on. Um, and and looking after our young ones and our old ones are often, you know, poorly paid. I mean, you know, like uh, early career educators are well, most poorly paid people in community, despite the important role they do in in that stage in people's lives. Uh, as well as nurses, is, as well, like it's, yeah, yeah. yeah. And then those are the people that are being paid. I mean, most of the work that yeah. happens in the home isn't paid. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, and David Greber, if I could use a you know a ref- reference here, uh, he's been a very prominent in in writing about this and the role of care work uh, in in terms of that maintenance that we all need to do in our lives is not well recognized uh, and in turn we have what he calls as bullshit jobs right <laughs> these other other work especially with lawyers and, and so on where they get paid obscene amounts of money um and uh yeah and and that's uh i guess another indictment of uh, the kind of system that we currently have yeah and I, I mean that book was made a really profound impression on me, and and that his definition of bullshit jobs was jobs that the people doing believe are bullshit. You know, like they don't assign, they know that there's not actually a lot of intrinsic value to what they are doing with their time. Doesn't mean their job is easy. Their job might be very highly paid. It might require a lot of thinking, but it doesn't actually have the value to themselves or to society. Um, you would never feel that when you're packing your kids' lunch, school lunch. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
And if, and and he talks about that too. Like there's almost this um, compensation of like, well, but if your job's meaningful, why should you get paid well for it? You know, like yeah. your compensation yeah. is that you're supposed to feel good about how meaningful, you know, you're supposed to get the warm fuzzies. Therefore you don't need the big paycheck. It's like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So um, how optimistic are you personally that we might look at 2053 in the way that you described to us at the start? Do you think humanity is going to get its act together and and transform through all these crises that we're facing in the right direction? Or does it depend on the day and what's going on in the headlines as to how you feel? You know, we talk about nature and nurture. And and I guess, you know, I think of myself as an optimistic person. Uh, and I guess I'm wired that way, which probably helps uh, given the job I do. Uh, but I also fuel that and feed that on a daily basis and, and, and not so much from the big things. And, you know, sometimes the big things are, you know, really encouraging and optimistic when they do happen. Uh, but I also find them uh, on a regular basis on the small things, uh, observing nature. And uh, and wonderful things in nature, which fills your heart again with a sense of wonder and joy, and and fills that with optimism, uh, which other parts of your job sucks out. <laughs> and I, I guess this goes to, you know, why people say it's important to connect with nature, uh, because it, it's all right. we don't think of it as filling us with optimism, but but for me, I I think of it in that that way. That's beautiful. I mean, this conversation has filled me with optimism. So <laughs> thank you for that. Do you have any final recommendations that you'd like to offer to people? You've mentioned a lot of wonderful um, books and you know things that we will link to in our show notes. But if there's a television show or a podcast, anything that, that you think our audience who've enjoyed this conversation should maybe go away and check out, I'd be happy to add that too. Yeah, look, I'll keep it simple and say that uh, I think if we all understood that systems model of the iceberg and systems thinking and the need for us to work across that iceberg in a synergistic way, I think we can all get further uh, more. Uh, a lot of what happens in, in sustainability and conservation is one step forward and two steps back or maybe five steps back sometimes. Um, and that's because we sometimes work in cross purposes and, and not, not, you know, working across the system and, and trying to be synergistic. And I think if we can all consciously make an effort uh, to find those synergies, and if you're not working in the field, you know, find other people who are working in the other part of the system and, and create these networks and partnerships, um, I think we can scale up our efforts a lot more. Mm, I love that. Thank you. And we'll, we'll see what we can link to on the iceberg model in our, in our show notes. And now, um, where can people find and follow more of you and your work? If I mean, I think you're going to increase enrollments to the University <laughs> of Tasmania <laughs> off the back of this conversation. At least I certainly want to go and enroll in, in the degree. But is there other places where people can find and follow your work? Yeah, look, uh, we, we're happy with the sustainable steady state. And uh, to give credit uh, to other wonderful universities and departments around Australia, they're doing a lot of this too. So, yeah. So if discerning students should look up at what, you know, all the universities offer and where they would like to live and, and, and study. Uh, and we'd love to see you here if you do make that choice to come and live in wonderful Lutrovida, Tasmania. Uh, and in terms of uh, my work, um, you know, I've got a 
university website, which um, is publicly accessible. And uh, I, don't, I haven't done any other promotion of my work, really. So, uh, yeah, just Google, I guess, right. on okay. a search engine. <laughs> no worries. We'll certainly link to the website and to, you know, the work that you have published up there. Uh, Dr. Vishnu Prahlad, it has been just a delight. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today and to, I guess, inspire us with even just a taste of, you know, the thinking and the work that you're doing and the way that you're framing um, what we can achieve in this in this world if we take our cues from nature and challenge our worldviews and learn to think across the different systems and layers of the iceberg. I've learned a lot talking to you. Thank you so much. Thanks, Lily. It's been a pleasure. I loved that in Vishnu's thought experiment about 30 years into the future, He didn't describe a utopia of arrival. He didn't describe an outcome. He described a process. He described a process that we're doing today and that we could scale up today. And that was really such a theme in the whole conversation. Focus on the process. Learn, look around, you know, look at the different layers of the iceberg and enjoy the journey. Get joy from the small things reconnect to nature. To me, this was just a beautiful conversation that um, does give me a sense of, of hope as well as real gratitude and appreciation for the way that different worldviews are starting to be heard and listened to again in countries that have had the you know neoliberal economic paradigm, um, that people are so excited in all these different spaces and sectors to be learning from Indigenous thinking um, and Indigenous worldviews right here at home in Australia. That's something that I would like to feature on our podcast very soon. So thank you again to Dr. Vishnu Prahalad. We'll have links to all of the things that were mentioned in your show notes for you. I hope that you enjoyed this and we'll see you next time over on The Remakers. Lily Spencer and I record my part of these conversations from the beautiful Guppy Guppy country on the Sunshine Coast of Queensland. Just want to honor the incredible elders of these lands and waters and Aboriginal culture. 60,000 years is the oldest continuing civilization on earth. I also want to pay a shout out to our producer, Anna Wilson, to my colleague and sometimes co-host, Dr. Millie Rooney. You can learn more about Australia Remade and everything we're about over on australiaremade.org. And in the meantime, thank you for sharing. Thank you for listening and subscribing, sending us your thoughts. We really appreciate all of the support that you give the podcast. We'll see you next time over on The Remakers. Remakers.